Good morning and welcome to St. John's Lafayette Square. Make sure this is on. Oh, good. Thank you. Uh, good morning and welcome to St. John's Lafayette Square. My name is Rob Fisher. I'm the rector of St. John's and very happy to welcome all of you here this day and especially to welcome our special guest. Uh, Vice Admiral Vivek H. Murthy was confirmed by the U.S. Senate in March 2021 to serve as the 21st Surgeon General of the United States under President, uh, President Biden. He also served as the 19th Surgeon General under Obama. And as Surgeon General, he has issued advisories on youth mental health, the youth mental health crisis, social media's impact on youth mental health, the epidemic of loneliness and isolation, and on burnout in, health, in the health worker community. And he has issued as Surgeon General a framework on mental health in the workplace. He is the first Surgeon General to host a podcast which is called House Calls with Dr. Vivek Murthy. He has an undergraduate degree from Harvard and two graduate degrees from Yale, from uh, his MD from the medical school and an MBA from the business school there. And um, I wanna also say, as I have come to know him, he is a remarkably compassionate and caring and thoughtful, intellectually curious person. And we're very fortunate to have somebody with that disposition to be the top doctor of the United States. Um, I, as a priest, believe in calling, the concept of being called and having a vocation. And as I have come to know him, he is called to be a healer. And so we're very grateful uh, to have you here present. And let's welcome Dr. Vivek Murphy. Day after day, surrounded by human suffering, 
and health crises and a healthcare system that just often couldn't keep up, we found our dreams melting away and our exhaustion growing. Now, what ultimately helped was a course called The Healer's Art, taught by Dr. Rachel Renner. During evening sessions spent reflecting on our experiences and re-anchoring the core values that brought us to medicine, we found our way At the end of classes, we were given a talisman in the form of a soft, fuzzy red marker that we kept in our pockets. Whenever we needed a reminder of who we were and what brought us to this work, we put our hand in our pocket and we clasped that the red heart became a reminder of our moral compass. I've come to see that what's happening today in our country is remarkably similar to what I was seeing in the hospital all those years ago. There are crises all around us, from pandemics and violence to climate change and worsening polarization. Frustration and worry are on the rise, and they're leading to stress and anxiety. And it's not clear that we're on a path that will see us through. I'm curious how many of us here may feel a sense of exhaustion when we turn on the news and see endless stories about what is broken, about our world, stories that often fuel fear and division. How many of us know a child who might be struggling with anxiety or depression or is considered taking their own lives? And how many of you know a parent who worries about their children's safety every time there is news breaking about another children? I remember hearing about the tragic shooting in a school in Nashville last March and feeling the instinct just deep in my bones to run back and pick up my kids from school and bring them home. And I know I wasn't alone. As Surgeon General, this is what concerns me, that all across our nation, people are feeling worried, exhausted, and pessimistic about the future. The pervasive sense of despair is affecting our health, but also the health of society. Now, how do you understand where this despair is coming from and how to turn it around? Well, our first instinct might be to blame near-term events, like, for example, COVID. Now, without a doubt, the pandemic turned our lives upside down, stole our loved ones, and was one of the most stressful experiences we've had as a nation in recent memory. But these problems I speak of, they precede COVID. If we go deeper, it becomes, it becomes clear that these feelings have been building for years, inflamed by an information environment that's increasingly negative, by social media, which has become a 24-7 accelerant of anger and fear, and by the warp speed pace of change, which has less, left so many people behind and bewildered. But I believe that the deepest root of our despair is that we have become a lonely nation. One in two adults in America report measurable levels of loneliness. And the numbers are actually much higher among young people. Our now epidemic levels of loneliness and isolation are so potent that they are driving mental illness, physical illness, and deepening polarization. As certain general, I began encountering stories of loneliness early in my travels. I remember a college student in Austin telling me that she was surrounded by classmates all the time Yet she felt that no one knew her, and she couldn't really be herself. Many of her classmates nodded that they felt the same. A teenager in San Diego told me that social media made her feel worse about herself and about her relationships. 
This is a message that I've echoed so many times by students all across the country. An elderly woman approached me after a talk here in Washington, D.C. to tell me that her husband has struggled without friends. She was really the only one that he ever confided in. And through stories like hers, I found that three things most commonly triggered loneliness among men when they fell ill, when they lost a spouse, or when they retired. I want you to think for a moment about someone you know who may be struggling with loneliness. Perhaps it's someone who's lost a loved one or who is contending with poor health. Maybe it's a child who's having a tough time making friends in school, or an adult who's finding just harder to socialize after the pandemic. Curious by a show of hands, how many people have someone who came to mind? Almost all of us. The truth is that we are all wrapped in this challenge of loneliness. And I've experienced this myself. As a shy and introverted kid, much of my early childhood was spent trying to get out of going to school because I didn't want to walk into the cafeteria again and not have anyone to sit with. By the way, I just picked up my mother from the airport and she doesn't know that I was trying to get out of school all the time. <laughs> so she's at home not here tonight, that might be a blessing this time. But one of my worst periods of loneliness was actually at the end of the It was after my first stint in Sermon General, where I found myself without a community of work and having grown distant from old friends because I had largely neglected my relationships when I was in office, a mistake that I still regret to this day. So this is personal. And there's also no one who is above loneliness. That's one thing that we can learn. We are all susceptible. We are all going through this challenge to some degree. And today, more people feel lonely than have diabetes in America. Being socially disconnected not only increases our risk for depression, anxiety, and suicide, but it also increases the risk of heart disease by 29%, the risk of dementia by 50%, and the risk of premature death as well. But loneliness isn't just bad for individuals, it's bad for society. Communities that are more connected actually experience less violence and more economic prosperity. They are more resilient in the face of adversity by hurricanes and tornadoes. And they are more protected from forces that would seek to turn us against one another. The truth is that we were not meant to live in this state of epidemic loneliness. Over thousands of years, what has happened to us is that we've evolved to live in connection with one another. During our undergathering days, we learned that when we built trusted relationships and leaned on each other, taking turns at night to watch around the fire for predators, sharing our food supply with one another, what happened was that we were all safer from the wrong health. This became so deeply ingrained in us that when we were, when we were separated from our group, it triggered a physiologic stress state in our body. That same response occurs today when we feel lonely. Our circumstances may be radically different from our undergathered ancestors, but our nervous systems are actually remarkably the same as they were thousands of years ago. The stress of loneliness in the short term, that may motivate us to go out and seek connection. But if the stress persists or is extreme, it can cause damage to our bodies and minds. Loneliness, like hunger or thirst, is a natural signal that our body sends us when we need something essential to our survival. In this case, human connection. 
The growing loneliness in work experiences impacting our health, our resilience, and our happiness. But what's more is that our growing disconnection is spilling over into our interactions with each other. It's easier to be coarse or hurtful or simply neglectful toward others, whether that's through our dialogue or our decisions, when we don't feel a connection to other people. The lonelier we get, the darker the world feels. The social connection crisis, though, is not purely a policy crisis or a political crisis. It is fundamentally a moral crisis. A moral crisis occurs when we lose our moral compass, when the values that inform our thoughts, words, and deeds are either provided or wholesale replaced by harmful norms. Right now, so many Americans have been across our country, tell me that it's tough to feel somehow, that it's more important to be right than to be compassionate, that it's more important to be powerful than to be fair, that it's more important to be successful than to be kind. And indeed, a few years ago, a Harvard study from the Graduate School of Education found that the majority of adolescents who were surveyed said that their parents felt that it was more important for them as kids to be successful in life than to be kind. And to address the deeper roots of disconnection and despair requires us to be crystal clear on the values that we want to guide us. It's here that I believe that scripture and history provide invaluable teachings. They tell us with remarkable consistency that love must be the galvanizing force in our lives and our communities. When we anchor our moral compass to the key pillars of love, to kindness, to generosity, to friendship, and to service, we are guided to create a world where we can rely on one another, where we look out for each other, and where we know we belong. By contrast, when the galvanizing force in our lives is fear, the results are very different. We find our actions driven by anxiety, insecurity, and anger, which pushes us further and further away from each other. We attempt to fill the hole in our lives with the reassurance of success, power, and popularity. But ultimately, we find there is no substitute for the healing power of human connection. This choice between love and fear as our guiding value this is the most consequential decision we have to make. This decision informs how we treat each other, how we raise our kids, how we choose our leaders, what programs we support in our communities. This decision is what makes a difference between a world of belonging, fulfillment, and hope, and one of loneliness, hopelessness, and despair. It's clear to me that if we want to how heal the despair and pain around us. We must choose love. We and millions of Americans must make this choice every day. When we think about taking on a challenge of this magnitude alone, I know that it may feel daunting. But it is when we look at the future together and that we realize that we have the power to make this profound shift from fear to love. What we are talking about here is no small is called for today in our country is nothing less than a moral reawakening in America. At the heart of this moral reawakening must be a profound shift in our diet, 
Now, I don't mean the food that we eat. And I saw some delectable treats outside, so feel free to help yourself out. But I'm talking about shifting from a diet of fear to a diet of love. Think for a moment about the hundreds of things that you and I consume each and every day, from news stories to posts and comments online to interactions with each other. How many of those items that we consume leave us feeling angry, frustrated, anxious, or insecure? That is the hallmark of a diet of fear. The key to creating the world that we want is to begin replacing that diet of fear with the diet of love, as manifested by experiences of kindness and generosity, of friendship and service. Every time we take a moment to listen to someone, even a stranger who is going through a hard time, every time we make it a point to reach out to people we love, or to seek to understand somebody before we judge them, we are expanding our diet of love. Love feeds us. Fear drains us. We've all experienced this. When we are kind and helpful, we know it feels good. When we are mean-spirited or cruel, even if we get a momentary bit of satisfaction in the moment, it feels terrifying. The more we add to our diet of love, and the more we reduce our diet of fear, the more we will be I want to offer you today four simple steps that we can take to choose a diet of love over a diet of fear. The first is to be in touch. Reach out to one family member or friend each day to check in by phone or in person. It can be for as long or short as you want. It's a simple and powerful way to foster greater connection. The second step is to be kind. Simple smile to a neighbor, a compassionate word to a coworker, a small gesture of gratitude to a family member. These can all make a world of difference in how we and those around us feel. Third, be of service. Service is one of the most powerful antidotes we have to loneliness. Service can be simple, helping somebody to drop their papers, listening to a friend who's dealing with disappointment, supporting a colleague who's having a rough time at work, or volunteering in your community. When we serve others, we remind each other that we are not alone and that we matter. The fourth is to be offline. Find at least one window when you're in that can be a tech-free zone. When we are constantly tethered to our devices, there are two things that happen. One is that we're constantly distracted from the people in front of us. The second thing is that we too often receive a stream, a steady stream, an unrelenting stream of news and posts that leave us feeling angry and drained. And we don't plan this. If you're like me and your hand just somehow magically dips into your pocket and voila, there's your phone and you're scrolling through the news of the latest headlines. That's what happens when we're constantly tethered to our devices. If your tech free zone it could be the hour before you sleep, it could be meal times, it could be time when you're with family and friends, or time when you're exercising and taking a walk. If we don't proactively create these spaces in our lives, they won't magically appear. Wherever it may be in your day, we all need tech free spaces. These four steps to be in touch, to be kind, 
surface, to be offline. These can help us build and enrich the diet of love in our minds. They can help us address despair and loneliness that can sustain us. But I say this knowing that it's more typical for a surgeon general to talk to you about tobacco or obesity or traditional public health issues. But for better or for worse, I've never been traditional <laughs> in my life. And even though that has been had its own share of challenges, I have been convinced over time by the thousands of Americans I've met in the data that I've studied that we cannot address the deeper despair in our country without rebuilding social connections. I keep a reminder of what's at stake right here in my pocket. These two items right here. <laughs> These are the socks that my son and daughter wore when they were infants. They're five and seven now. That still feels like yesterday. Before my son was born, I spent a lot of time thinking about the state of the world. It was 2016. It was a year when violence and racial tensions Instability and polarization were on full display. I was worried about the world that he was growing up in. Would such a world welcome him if he looked different and had a funny sounding name like his father? Would there be people that helped him when he stumbled, as we all inevitably do from time to time? Would he find a community, or would he struggle in an increasingly lonely world? I still don't fully know the answers to. But I know what I want them to do. And I want to do everything I can to tip the scales in our world toward love and away from fear. I want to do that so that we can create a kind, compassionate world in which my kids and all of our kids can thrive. That's why the moral reawakening that this moment calls for is so important. It's about more than a single policy or a single program. It's about finding our moral compass and having the courage to use it to guide us in how we treat each other and how we design our institutions and how we choose our leaders and how we invest our resources. It's about redefining strength, not as the loudest voice in the room or the most intimidating presence, but as the courage to be authentic the willingness to be kind, and the commitment, the fierce commitment, to serve each other. There are millions of us who want this kind of world. There are many who are starting to create in their own quiet ways, making a conscious choice to invest more time in the family, or reaching out to get to know their neighbors, or supporting community members who are struggling in their workplaces or their congregations. And there are leaders and community organizations that are stepping up as well to give a voice to this critical shift that we need to make, to this moral reawakening that we all must be a part of. These leaders and organizations are creating cities oriented around kindness, workplaces focused on strengthening social connection, and faith communities that are serving and advocating for those who are suffering. Millions of small steps have the power to shape the world. And that is what we are called to do today. So let us go forward knowing that we are not alone, that we are part of an invisible movement of hope, of possibility, of human connection.
that we are kindred spirits who understand deep in our hearts that we are not angry and cynical by nature. We are optimistic and courageous. We are generous and kind. And this is our time to reclaim that identity and to reaffirm who we are. It's in each other that we will find the inspiration to build this movement. And if we ever find ourselves questioning the power of the connection, I'll leave you today with a simple practice that you can turn to during those moments of doubt. So join me in raising your right hand. Place it over your heart and close your eyes. For the next few moments, I want you to think about the people in your life who have been there for you during your moments of triumph and your moments of sadness. The people who stood by you, who have reminded you of who you are even when you forgot. Reminded you that you are enough, that there's nothing more you need to do or say. People who embraced you, who sat with you, and who reminded you that love is one of the greatest things that we can give one another. Feel their love raining down upon you, filling you. told you he's called to be a healer. And uh, it's really such a, a privilege for us as a community of faith here in this house of prayer uh, to be speaking about what you were just speaking about. Um, we at St. John's have a way about us and it is part of our mission to turn toward love and away from fear. And you expressed so many of those things so eloquently. And um, to, to hear them from the nation's top doctor, top doctor just thrills me. So. Uh, thank you. I, I also want to say a, a little plug. Um, when I knew that you would be coming, I picked up a copy of your book together. 
And I really recommend that to anybody. If you have, uh, it actually recently came out on paperback, so you can find it at Politics and Prose or your favorite electronic bookseller anywhere. Um, I started reading it, and what I did is I bought five copies for five of my best friends. And on their birthdays, I'm sending each of them a copy of it and telling them, let's read this together. So we are. So thank you for that. Now we're going to open this up to some questions and answers from you. Clark has a microphone, and he will bring it out. If you have a question you'd like to raise your hand, Clark will come and find you. Go ahead and keep using that. Hi. Hi, my name is <laughs> my name is Rajiv, and um, I just want to say, as as someone who's also the son of immigrants uh, with a funny first name, I really empathize with your story. Um, a little bit about me: I'm uh, hopefully going to be a medical student soon, um, and as someone who's here interning for a professional office. I'm really interested in matters of public health that I just wanted to get your perspective on. Someone who's really interested in that intersection of public health, healthcare, all of that stuff. What would you advise me in terms of experience to look out for? Um, things to be interested in, something like that. Well, that'd be, uh, thank you for your question. And thank you for your answer. I'm so glad you're interested in medicine and public health. The people often say you know, we need more people in medicine and public health because we're here hypertension and diabetes and other illnesses are going up and up and up. While that is true, the biggest reason I think we need more people in public health is because we have so much pain in the world. We people who can see that pain through a comprehensive lens with compassion and, and recognize that healing again is not only in the policy and the programs that we create, but also in how we approach one another, interact with one another. The only thing I would say to you is that uh, I'm glad that you have this experience of working in a professional office, and I hope that you have many more uh, rich experiences that give you an opportunity to sample the different ways out there to serve so that you can see what resonates with you. And my hope for you is that you will promote is, is that you will cultivate what I think is the most important resource that we have over time, which is that voice of God in science that speaks to us in the form of intuition. Uh, sometimes in other ways, and that helps us understand whether what we should move toward and what we should move away from. I found in my own life that that voice has been critical in helping guide me. Sometimes I didn't always understand why it was moving me away from something and towards something else, or moving me towards someone and away from someone else. But I have found that the most important skill I can build in my life is to be able to listen more clearly to that voice and to be able to trust it. Uh, distinguishing your instinct um, your instinct is actually challenging. Sometimes intuition can feel an awful lot like fear. Right? And so that's like, in my mind, the work that we have to do in life is getting more and more clear about when that deep-seated fear feeling is coming from a place of insight and wisdom, uh, when it's coming from that divine spark inside of us. And that you not be afraid to follow uh, what it says. The last thing I just did is I was reminded when I was in school if you might take a year off uh, at one point. And when I was told, gosh, this is a huge risk that you'd be taking, taking a year off, people are going to think, you're not serious about your education, you're not serious about your life, you're never going to get into graduate school, like life is going to be over, and you know you're going to prepare to fail for their journey to come your real life and they're taking a whole time, all this time you're taking a year off. But when I think we ran into another measure, he said to me, you know, 
say, um, are there policy measures that you have considered uh, relating to the burnout and despair of healthcare Question near your time apart, and thank you for, for asking that. Um, so the short answer is yes. Uh, we have in the spring of 2022, uh, I issued uh, the first surgical advisory on health worker burnout because I was concerned about a ballooning crisis that we were looking at. Even before the pandemic, we saw that nearly half of doctors were saying that they were burned out. It's a very high number, right? And we know that burnout is not it's not a pure mental health phenomenon, it's a workplace phenomenon. It's when you're operating in an environment where you're working excessively or where you have a gap, uh, as I think of it as a self-efficacy gap, where you see the problems in front of you, but you don't have the resources to address them. That causes more injury, contributes to burnout, and people drop out of the workforce. So what we detailed last year in that report is that around 52% of nurses were saying that we plan to leave their clinical practice because of burnout. 25% of doctors were saying the same. There's no way to sustain not just emergency care, but routine primary care in our country with those kind of burnout rates. And so we did lay out a number of actions that we need to take as a country from increasing access to mental health services to changing the nature of the work in the clinical setting to reduce the administrative burden on clinicians and increase the time that they can spend directly with patients. Um, very few doctors and nurses I knew I know that God in his profession is saying, you know, one day mom and dad want to grow up in a chart of the entire medical <laughs> and high priorities of that. People didn't go into the professional community. They got in and say, hey, I really want to spend time with patients who are having a hard time. I want to be a part of their healing journey. I want to be able to make a difference in their lives. And so changing the nature of the work is another key part of this. And we lay out a number of ways to do that, including by reducing prior authorizations, which are uh, steps uh, that often payers uh, take to uh, be blunt, make it harder uh, for people to access a certain medication or service, uh, even when uh, a patient and a doctor think that it's clinically necessary uh, for their care. Um, so we lay a number of steps like this and have been working with, with government and with uh, private sector partners to move that forward. Um, no question that we have to be able to help those who have dedicated their lives to helping others. And I think our, our, our failure to do so over the last many years compounded the incredible stress that COVID brought to healthcare providers, especially in hospitals and clinics. Um, and that has led to the kind of crisis that we are now seeking to address today. Um, thank you. Uh, I And then the second question I asked them was, 
said, how many of you felt like you had the tools with which to manage that stress? About 5% of the hands And that reflects actually a deeper, a deeper insight that I think is now getting from university chaplains around the country. I just met with a group of chaplains actually in Los Angeles last week. And they told me that even when they look at the breadth of their careers at the different generations, they see a profound shift from millennials to Gen Z in terms of their sort of their willingness, their ability, um, their sort of mental makeup, if you will. And I said, tell me more what you need. They said, what interesting thing. They said, in 2008, when the financial crisis, the Great Recession, hit, that was a really tough time for a lot of people. But they said they found that millennials still came in, and even though they knew that we were in difficult times, uh, that there was still a sense of hope and optimism that, you know, we had to really rough right now. We don't know when it's going to get better, but we think it's going to get better. We think we can help make it better. There's a sense of, of optimism. You fast forward 10 years, and they said that optimism is gone. Even though the Great Recession, much of the pain of it preceded, uh, not that everything's perfect, but they said a lot of that optimism is gone, and they found that Many students today are telling them that they're finding it harder to ask for help. They're finding, finding it harder to have dialogues uh, with other people because they're worried about crossing a territory that's controversial, uh, about being attacked, you know, or about being misunderstood. Because uh, you, you certainly understand that you're going to find around dialogue today. Uh, so there's been a big shift, you know, even in the last 10 years. Um, and that's so I'm very worried actually about that. I think to combat all this, could social media help? I think it can be used and designed in the right way. My concern right now with how social media is designed, and this is the subject of our most recent uh, report from the Office of the Surgeon General, is that social media right now is designed to maximize how much time all of us spend on it. But there's a difference between time spent and time well spent. And if your goal is just to maximize how much time, then even if that comes with expensive sleep, time with other people, even if that kind of increases the amount of anxiety I feel as I'm constantly comparing myself to other people online, even if that time comes with expensively exposed to harmful content by violence or bullying or harassment from others, then the system will keep trying to maximize time because that's what the model is built on. Um, now, Google, no shade on business models, you know, like they're built to maximize profit, I understand that. But as individuals, and as a doctor myself, I found myself thinking most, and being most concerned about the impact on the mental health and well-being of young people and of all people when it comes to social media. So are there ways that social media and theory can bring us together? Yes. Can social media be used to help spread the word about an event that we may be organizing offline? Uh, can it be used to help build support or gather donations uh, for somebody who may have gone through a hard time? Absolutely. But I think what is the, the what has happened now is we place the entire burden of moderating the experience of social media, of figuring out how to thread the needle so that it helps you, but you don't incur all these other challenges and harms that you're seeing increasingly accrue to people, whether it's a loss of esteem, their fracturing of their relationships, or shift from online to the offline relationships to online. The entire burden has been placed on the individuals, and specifically on kids and other parents. And this is why the most common question that I get from parents all across America is about social media. They always ask me, is social media safe for my kids? 
I believe that this is uh, the end of our time, but I wish it could go on. I think this is a really important conversation that we are able to have here. Um, as we wrap this up, I think what I'd like to say is just for all of us who are gathered here, who are invested in what you've been talking about, let us all commit to find ways that we individually and collectively can be healers for a country that is in need of healing. And so thank you all for being here. Thank you, Dr. Murthy.